0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Some years ago, I woke up to the reality that the ministry in which I'm engaged today is significantly different than the ministry which I entered upon graduation from college. When I started out, the two small churches I was privileged to pastor Life in ministry was about Bible study and prayer, sermon prep work, pastoral care, occasional evangelism, and then just doing life with the people who were part of those church communities. It is true that some of that has remained the same, but some of that has changed dramatically. There's a feel in the air anymore that ministry is more about business models and CEOs and many other realities that were never part of it when I started. But it's not just that. Those two towns where I was privileged to pastor were largely Christian. You know what I'm talking about? Small towns where it feels like there's a church on every corner? I suspect that every Sunday morning, or Sabbath morning in my case, the, the citizens of that town were largely in church. I suspect that had you walked down the street and and started asking random people questions about the Bible, you would have, for the most part, gotten correct answers. In other words, I did ministry in a context that was largely Christian. Truth is, I didn't lie awake at night wondering about the church ten years from now. I didn't lie awake at night wondering about the intersection between culture and church. I didn't lie awake at night wondering if the church of tomorrow will survive. That wasn't part of the bargain. How things have changed. Just how dramatically they have changed is underlined by two quotations I'd like to share with you. I thought a bit about it because they're a bit more extended but I decided I wanted to read them to you. They come from two different books. Two books, one which I read just recently and one which I'm going through right now. Both of them have had a profound impact on me. The first comes from a book written by Todd Bolsinger. Todd Bolsinger's written a book called Canoeing the Mountains. I want you to listen to what Bolsinger writes. Sociologists and theologians refer to this recently past period as Christendom the 1,700-year-long era with Christianity at the privileged center of Western cultural life. Christendom gave us Blue Laws and the Ten Commandments in school. It gave us Under God in the Pledge of Allegiance and exhortations to Bible reading in national newspapers. I have a copy, says Bolsinger, of the Los Angeles Times from December 1963 that has stories on the Warren Commission, the 9,000-member Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and a list of daily Bible readings for the upcoming week. Can you even imagine, he asks, the Los Angeles Times exhorting people to read their Bibles today. It was the day when every city father laid out the town square with the courthouse, the library, and a first church of whatever within the center of the city. For most of us, says Bolsinger, those days are long gone. When cities are now considering using eminent domain laws to replace churches with tax revenue generating big box stores. When Sundays, in his faith, are more about soccer and Starbucks than about Sabbath. When Christian student groups are getting de-recognized on university campuses. When the fastest growing religious affiliation among young adults is none. When there's no moral consensus built on Christian tradition, even among Christians. When a funeral in a conservative beach town is more likely to be a Hawaiian-style paddle-out than a gathering in a sanctuary, then Christendom, as a marker of society, has clearly passed. Bolsinger is underlining what I have experienced in my years of ministry. And he's not alone. The second book, The Innovative Church, written by Scott Cormode, contains these paragraphs. Writes Cormode. "...almost everything about the current experience of church was established in a bygone era. The way we worship, the passages of Scripture we cherish, the people we expect to see, the basic contours of church have not changed even as the world has been transformed. The church as we know it is calibrated for a world that no longer exists." The world has changed, but the church has not. Congregations act the way that they did before the climate changed, and congregants often wish that the world would just go back to the way it once was. Indeed, the pace of change is accelerating. Something new rolls over us even as we are still reeling from the last thing. In the past, the church had had time to adjust between changes. It could absorb the initial shock of social change, wait for things to settle into an equilibrium, and then learn from those who had already adjusted to the new reality. But the wait-and-copy strategy will not work anymore. For most of the church's history, Christians had up to a century to recalibrate in the face of a disruptive change. But now... Sweeping changes are happening years apart rather than decades apart. There's not enough time between changes before the next wave hits. The wait and copy strategy will no longer work because we live in what one scholar has called a world of permanent white water. You recognize that. Life has changed dramatically. It's as though the world has been transformed, and in many cases, not in a good direction. And then, there sits the church. How does the church respond? What do those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus do? I want to take us today to one of Paul's letters. His first letter to the church in ancient Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now for a bit of context, before the passage we read today, Paul has been talking about his rights as an apostle. He's been defending his rights as an apostle. He is saying, don't I have the same rights all the other apostles have? But curiously, he is saying, even though I have those rights, I'm not claiming them. I'm not standing on them. In fact, he has bluntly said, I have not used my rights as an apostle. It's important to know that as the background before today's passage because in today's passage, Paul is going to go a step further. He's not only going to recognize that I'm not claiming my rights, but he's going to say, I'm giving up my rights and I'm adapting to others. As an apostle, he has the right to say this is the way things are and this is the way things are going to continue. But in today's passage, that's not what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 19, records this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. One more quote from Todd Bolsinger to underline the situation we're in. The church, he says, is at an exciting crossroads. We are entering a new day, new terrain, and a new adventure. The next steps are going to be demanding. More than anything, this moment requires us to embrace an adventure-or-die mindset and find the courage and develop the capacity for a new day. We are heading into uncharted territory and are given the charge to lead a mission where the future is nothing like the past. How does the church respond? Well, remember where we are. We're in a series entitled Seven Ideas That Could Save the Church and one more that could change the world. We're at a a point of great change and turmoil in the world, in the culture. And we're turning to the apostle asking What should we do, Paul? We want the church to stand strong, to stand tall, and let's admit it, to be unchanging. And then we come to Paul's words. Paul's words as he describes his life of adapting here, adapting there, adapting the other place. In fact, he talks about four different places he adapts with the Jewish people, with those under the law, which could be the same, with those not under the law, which most definitively were not the same, and with the weak. And he's using those just as examples of places and ways in which he has adapted Now we're tempted to say, Paul, you need to grow a backbone. You need to have some spine. You need to stand for something because it seems like you're waffling here and there and everywhere. Why don't you stand firm and strong and tall? Reminds me of the two men that appeared before a judge. The first one presented his case after which the judge said, you're absolutely right. The second one presented his diametrically opposed case to which the judge says, you're absolutely right. To which the first one said, we can't both be absolutely right. To which the judge said, you're absolutely right. That's what Paul feels like here. He waffles this way and then that way. Paul, stand for something. Why are you adapting everywhere? Well, Paul gives us that answer. He doesn't give us the answer once or twice or three times or four times. Five times at least he names why he is making his adaptations. In verse after verse, he says, I don't belong to anyone. I've enslaved everyone to win as many as possible. He goes on to say to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, to win them. To those not under the law, I became like one not under the law to win them. To the weak, I became weak, so that I could have a hearing there. I have become all things to all people, so that by any possible means I might save some. He's told us clearly why he adapts. It is in order that the gospel might get a hearing. Now understand, I know Paul enough. You know Paul enough. To know that Paul is not compromising the gospel. Just this morning in my devotional times, I was reading Galatians, and there in Galatians he says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches to you a different gospel, let that one be accursed. Make no mistake about it, when it comes to the central realities, Paul will not bend. But when it comes to so many other realities, he adapts, 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 and then adapts yet again. So here's our idea for today. Idea number seven for today is simply this. While the gospel never changes, the church must continually adapt. While the gospel never changes, the church must continually adapt. So how do we enter into that? What steps might we take to apply that? Well, many minds are grappling with that question. Many much more studied, much more capable, with much greater insight than I have. But I want to offer you three realities that we might consider to get us moving in that direction. The direction that says the gospel never changes, but the church must continually adapt. So here's reality number one. Distinguish between container and content. Distinguish between container and content. Container is how we do our religious experience together in community. When a body of Christ followers gather together and make decisions about what they believe about God, Scripture, and life, and then about how they will live that out. You know, it's things like church structure it's organization, it's polity. It has to do with more informal things like just the customs and habits in which we engage, the way we dress when we go to church, the kinds of musical instruments we appreciate, the style of worship in which we celebrate God. All those are container. Content, however, is the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the character of God. It's the grace of Jesus. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the story of God's salvation work among human beings and how God brings us to himself. It is the unchanging truth upon which we stand. We have to distinguish between those two. And honestly, we have not done a very good job of that. Some years ago, I was invited to speak on a a cruise. (laughs) It was a thankless task, but somebody had to do it. And it was in the Caribbean. There were a lot of singers who were part of the cruise. We stopped on Sabbath at an island where the Adventist churches around the island were all going together together in a stadium. And we were going to have worship there, church there. It was a great moment. I was looking forward to the singers. I had to speak. And so as we walked toward the stadium, it was hot. It was humid. We were perspiring already. And we were dressed up. And as I looked at all the worshipers who were coming, they were dressed to the nines. Dresses and hose and high heels and suits and ties. Everybody's sweating. And I made a comment to one of the other speakers. I said, what in the world? Why do the people here dress like this? He said to me, don't blame them. They knew exactly how to dress until we missionaries showed up and said, you're doing it the wrong way. You've got to dress this way. So blame us, he said. Not them. We have often failed to distinguish between container and content. One of my favorite books of a man who did this very well, who distinguished with clarity, is the book Bruchko, B-R-U-C-H-K-O, Bruchko, written by Bruce Olson. As a young man, a missionary among the Motilones, a tribe of indigenous peoples in the jungles of Colombia and Venezuela and South America. It's a fascinating book of a young man who distinguished between container and content, who lived among the people who loved them for years before he began to divulge the content. You know the story. You maybe read them as you grew up, as I did, the stories of the missionaries who went to indigenous peoples and always ended up in this clash between witch doctor and missionary in which the missionary finally won. Go to Bruchko, Bruce Olson. As he's trying to connect, to love, to distinguish, trying to figure out how to do it. The time had come where he was able to leave their lands and go to the cities and then return, and they had accepted him. An epidemic of pink eye broke out in the village. He, he, he got some medication that could, could heal it. He went to the witch doctor and said, Please, use this. Put it in their eyes. Which doctor refused. He thought about it. He went out and he found the man with the worst case. He rubbed his fingers in the man's eyes and then rubbed him in his own eyes. Shortly he had a raging case of pink eye, upon which time he went to the witch doctor and he said, here, put this in my eyes. And soon he was well. And then he said, Now put it in their eyes. I will supply it to you. And thus he forged a connection rather than oppositional that later led to hundreds of choices to know Jesus. we're going to live out Paul's principle, it seems to me that one of the first things we have to do is distinguish between container and content. But here's a second suggestion, a second reality that might be a step forward. Experiment on the margins. Experiment on the margins. So, the church finds itself right now in a clash beti- between two competing realities, or to use a different metaphor, in the tension of a tightrope between two different truths. The thing on which we can all agree is the world is changing rapidly. But because of that, here's one of the truths we know from sociological studies that in times of turbulence and societal upheaval people rush to the places of stability and permanence the places that feel like they have a solid foundation between people's feet beneath people's feet one of those places needs to be the church So the church in times of societal upheaval needs to stand firm and strong. It needs to be dependable, which for many means unchanging. We do it the way we've always done it. So there's that side of the issue. But then there's the other side of the issue which we intuitively have recognized, it seems to me, that if the church doesn't change while the world continues to change, that the day will come when we are one stop on the tour of yesterday, when we become a relic relegated to one shelf in the museum. And so then we have people that push us, push us to change, and thus develops the tension What should the church do? I'm borrowing a line from somebody I've come to respect and appreciate deeply over the last couple of years, Scott Cormode, professor of leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. The line is this experiment on the margins. Experiment on the margins. In other words, if if we as a church are leading change into the future, let's not blow everything up. Change everything about the church. Because that pulls the rug out from too many people's feet. And what they need to be stable and solid and dependable suddenly is gone and they're angry and don't know where to turn. You've seen it happen and so have I. It's too much. But then we have the reality that we must change not to be doomed to the ash heap of history. And so says Cormode: experiment on the margins. Leave those realities about church that are working well and that are ministering to people and that are dependable and secure. Leave them in place. Continue to minister. But then on the margins, experiment. Try something different. Try something new. If it works, you've learned, and you can continue to build on that. If it doesn't work, you end it, and you have not destroyed your church. Experiment on the margins because we need enough stability and similarity that people can depend on the church. But we need enough newness that we are moving into the future. Now, can I add one word? One serious word? If you are part of the church, a disciple of Jesus, somebody who is accustomed to the ways we do things. And then you encounter people who are experimenting on the margins. For heaven's sakes, don't shoot at them. Stop shooting at them. That is not what Paul did here. As he moved the Christian mission forward, He adapted. He flexed. He had the right to say, this is the way it's going to be. He said, am I not an apostle? But then he went on to say, but I don't claim that right. I adapt. I adapt. I adapt. So stop shooting at those who are experimenting. Instead, go to your knees and pray for them. Of course there will be mistakes made. I remember a time when we experimented. We tried something here at the church I love, and it didn't go well. It simply did not. We should never have done it. And there were many who were locked and loaded and ready to come after us. And then a group of us as senior pastors of college and university churches across the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists sat on the stage here at my church and talked about what had happened. I will never forget what Craig Newborn, at that time senior pastor of the Oakwood University Church in Alabama, said. He said, referring to what we had done, it's not my cup of tea but I'm not the only one drinking at the well. It's not my cup of tea, but I'm not the only one drinking at the well. Craig, wherever you are, I have never forgotten that. That, my dear brother, was salve to a wounded soul. Experimented, didn't work. Most would say. And then somebody who didn't shoot. But who cared? That's the spirit of Paul. Adapt. Remember our idea. While the gospel never changes. The church must continually adapt. So distinguish between container and content, experiment on the margins, and a third reality we might wish to consider, we might wish to think about as we move in this direction, is listen to the digital natives. Listen to the digital natives. Listen to all kinds of voices that the church has not listened to well in the past. So who are the digital natives? Well, that's a term that is being used these days to describe those people who have been born into and have grown up in a digital world. It is second nature to them. It is intuitive to them. That as opposed to digital immigrants. I'm a digital immigrant. I wasn't born into that world. I've had to learn it. In fact, I can remember during my tenure here at this church, a friend who came to the church one day bringing this this little this little rectangular device. I didn't know what it was. He was trying to explain it to me. He said, it's called an iPod. I thought I was using bad grammar. An iPod. I'm a digital immigrant. I have to learn it. But we are surrounded by people, young adults, youth, who are digital natives. They know the reality of the world that is emerging. It is woven, it seems, almost into their DNA. They know its conversations. They know its likes, its dislikes, its cultures. They know the way to navigate that world. And yet the reality is the church has seldom, too seldom listened to them. One of the ways, one of the places that I've seen that happen, I think this is changing. I hope this is changing. One of the ways in which I've I've seen that happen, of not choosing to listen to them, is when it comes to our evangelistic endeavors. I've watched, so have you, those times when there is a prime opportunity to do something for the cause of Christ, to share the love of Jesus with those around us. And yet, because we fail to listen to the digital natives, It is is done in a way that hasn't worked not just for years, but for decades. All we have to do is ask. Will this work? And they'll tell us, yes it will, no it won't. If we just listen to them. It would be like taking a trip into uncharted, unmapped territory and refusing to listen to the people for whom this is their native land. We don't need you. We don't need to ask. We can read maps. Problem is, it's unmapped. It's uncharted. So why not take a person or a group of people for whom this is their native land say, come with us. Show us the way. Guide us. We need you. Friends, they're all around us. And when we don't listen to them, they usually just leave. Remember our idea. Very simple. While the gospel never changes, the church must continually adapt. Let's listen to the digital natives. So what do we do in a world that is continually changing, continually shifting, a world in which the next change is upon us before we can recover from the last change, the world which Scott Cormo described as an era, an age of permanent whitewater? What do we do? Well, we first of all remember, while the gospel never changes, the church must continually adapt. So we distinguish between container and content. We experiment on the margins and we listen to the digital natives. And you know, maybe we also remember that this is the seventh idea. There have been six before it. Six other ideas. Some of which, no matter how much the world changes, never go out of date. You know, ideas like, it's the Holy Spirit that matters. Or ideas like, it's all about love. Because no matter how much change we face, the Holy Spirit has us. And we never outgrow our need for love.